Welcome to your weekly American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with my friend and colleague, Derek Davison. Derek, how are you doing this fine Thursday day? I'm doing all right. I feel like we've ended, I don't know how it is out your way, but I feel like we've ended the days of 100 plus degree weather for, for the year. So I'm happy about that. I don't know what it's like out your way. How are you doing? It's uh, officially autumn out here in sunny California. Um, we've had a kind of weird week or so of overcast. So it's kind of like this, you know, LA is already a chaotic space. <laughs> You'll be surprised to learn LA has a lot of chaotic energy in it. And so everything just feels a little bit apocalyptic now, which, you know, I, I, I like, <laughs> I imbibe that energy. It gives me power and it gives me strength. So uh, things are, you know, doing well out here. Uh, you know, Just feeling more powerful than always. And just, you know, feeling good about the United States and its place in the world. You know, I feel like we're going to be doing a lot of good for this world and the rest of 2021 and into 2022 and we're really going to turn things around <laughs> yeah that, that yeah I, I i've been feeling something similar uh sure sure why no, not? so that's great so speaking that. of turning things around <laughs> let's go over to our friends in the uk our, our, our special relationship with the united kingdom our our, our bros over there are having a, a bit of trouble it turns out you can't just leave the european union and have absolutely no consequences when you look at the potential of this country waiting to be unleashed, I know that we can turn this opportunity into a stunning success. <laughs> Go figure. I mean, who could have predicted this? <laughs> Particularly when it comes to the underclass of laborers you were relying on. So Derek, yeah. why don't you let everyone know what's going on over in uh, jolly old England? Sure. There's. Um, it's been reported as a gas shortage. Um, it's not really a gas shortage. Uh, gas stations are running out of product uh, all over the country, but they're doing so not because the product isn't in the UK. It's because there aren't enough truck drivers to get the product to the gas stations. And so um, stations are running out and people are panic buying um, you know, good, been good, not rational, rational actor reaction. Right, the, the, exactly. the second I mean, there's you know, no gas, yeah. hoard, hoard um, immediately. I mean, people <laughs> may remember this happened in the U.S. a few months ago because there was a cyber oh, yes. attack on a pipeline. And at the and, beginning of COVID, uh, I think I bought 45 packages of macaroni and cheese. There was a lot of hoarding. Uh, oh yeah, uh, well, I mean, toilet, COVID, toilet like, paper. The great toilet paper, toilet paper shortage of 2020. Anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember. Actually, I have a story about that. We we went to we had uh, just gotten a um, a Sam's Club membership or no Costco membership, I guess. Uh, and joining like, the elite, I see. Yeah, That's Patreon exactly. money. <laughs> no, we were very excited about this. Uh, and so we went to Costco for the first time, and it was just as the pandemic was like starting to get traction. And I think my wife and I were a little bit kind of out to lunch on this, but people were already starting to like stock up on stuff. And we went in there and we're like, Oh, we'll buy, you know, a big thing of 
paper towels, big thing of toilet paper, et cetera. We didn't realize how bad it was. And we couldn't, there was no toilet paper. I mean, there's no toilet paper on the shelves. Uh, and I'm like wandering around going, what the hell is going on here? And I found, like, I think somebody had stashed a thing of toilet paper in like a, a corner of the store, like hoping to come back and get it later. That's so and funny. And I, I just happened to see it. And I'm like, okay, I'll get this. And that I was actually you know, mine. I was in the DC area. So thanks. <laughs> thanks a lot, Derek. Sure, really anytime. appreciate that. Help. No, I mean, like, you know, still hadn't fully sunk in what what we were in for but it was it was only a short time after that that we we kind of you know really things really hit the fan well it's just interesting because when people don't have faith in systems they hoard and it's kind of compelling that you know 25 seconds after something seems to go wrong (laughs) everyone in transatlantic society just starts hoarding good so it seems like Yeah, so it seems like what's happening in the UK is they just have a shortage of truck drivers to literally get the product to the supplier. This is a a whole mix of things. It's uh, partly Brexit because the estimate I saw was the UK is short about 100,000 truck drivers and about 20% of that would have been made up had, you know, EU nationals who were in the UK doing this kind of work not left because of Brexit. We've taken back the tools of self-government. The rest of the shortfall is predominantly caused by COVID, which has interrupted uh, trucker training programs. They haven't been able to uh, sort of replenish the people who've retired um, and, and you know, fill the shortfall that way. Um, panic buying is certainly contributing to the shortages, although how much is questionable to me. I mean, the, the the British government has been very keen to say there's no problem except that you people are panic buying and you're causing the shortage. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's that's shifting the blame somewhat off of, uh, you know, a couple of things that have gone wrong with the supply chain and with in terms of Brexit. And, and the supply chain issue goes beyond uh, gas stations. I mean, there are stores all over the UK of all types, grocery stores, department stores, uh, who say they're not going to have products on the shelves for the holiday season because there's not enough, uh, there's not enough resilience in the system to, to get the products there. Um, and other countries are, are facing similar problems, not exacerbated. They haven't exacerbated it by, uh, pulling out of any large trade blocks or, or, uh, supranational institutions. Uh, but everybody is facing some lingering supply chain issues as a result of the pandemic. Yeah, and so it'll be interesting to see what happens when, uh, you know, you can't consume, which defines life in the North Atlantic world, uh, how things go. Probably not great. But speaking of how things go and speaking of the country of the future, let's fly from the United Kingdom to Saudi Arabia and the city of Neom, where... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> where, where one of the most momentous meetings of two of the greatest men in human history, two friends of our podcast, in Absolutely. fact, Jake Sullivan and Mohammed bin Salman, meet uh, to discuss what, Derek? So what's going on in Saudi Arabia with our friend Jake and uh, MBS? Um, I, I mean, I think this was mostly just a touching base meeting. Um, they did... Uh, you know, have some tour of Neon, which is the $500 billion boondoggle that, that Mohammed bin Salman is building. Uh, City in of the future, actually. Saudi Arabia. Yeah, it was. We put all of our money in crypto. Right. At one point, going to have an artificial moon. I don't think that's happening anymore, but, oh uh, you know, all manner of, all manner of things. Um, 
I mean, the the subjects, Yemen, as you might expect, was uh, high on the list, um, though I don't think, as he should have done, Sullivan went and laid down the law to the Saudis and, uh, you know, made any kind oh, of... definitely not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He talked about human rights and its importance to the Biden right. administration. That right. seems to be the long and the short of it. Um, basically, yeah. I mean, he talked about Saudi human rights issues. Um, I think they talked about the diplomatic engagement, the sort of tentative kind of back channel diplomatic engagement that's been going on between the Saudis and the Iranian government, uh, mostly via Iraq. Um, so, I mean, it was sort of a grab bag of things. I'm sure none of it was, despite the uh, post meeting kind of read out that he stressed the importance of human rights. Uh, oh, yeah. to, I'm, I'm sure there was not any like real stressing uh, of human rights there because this is uh, a relationship despite Joe Biden's campaign rhetoric that uh, uh, his administration has no interest in uh, sort of challenging in any way to uh, uh, or risking in any way by by bringing up uncomfortable things like starving the Yemeni people or the, the lousy human rights record of the Saudi kingdom. So I've got a couple of questions. One, <clears throat> why do you think Biden didn't announce that Jake was over there initially? Why do you think they waited until he was actually there? That seems like a bit of a strange thing because he also met with the UAE um, and he met with other leaders in the region. So it seems like, you know, this is the first big Middle East trip taken by one of the most important foreign policymakers in the Biden administration. It struck me as odd that they didn't announce anything until he was actually there. What do you think that was? Well, I think um, I mean, I think part of it is that that there's a lot of uncomfortable. I mean, there's still a lot of bad feelings around Mohammed bin Salman uh, in the United States. And there is still this uh, lingering sense that Biden promised to do one thing with respect to the Saudi relationship and has not followed through on it. And so they don't want to they don't want to talk about these uh, diplomatic contacts or stress them. Um, in a way that would get a lot of attention. I mean, just uh, I think last week, the House passed uh, an amendment by Representative Rohana uh, into the National Defense Authorization Act that would end uh, all U.S. support for the Saudi military operation in Yemen. Um, it would drop this kind of bullshit uh, in my opinion, distinction between offensive and defensive. Actions, we don't curse is, on this podcast. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And <laughs> I, I, I didn't mean to, uh, you know, violate anybody's uh, precious ears there. But um, you know that that has allowed the the administration to justify basically continuing most of its support uh, for what the Saudis are doing. I mean, they just I think a few days ago the Houthis shot down a U.S. reconnaissance drone that was clearly operating in a combat zone where the Saudis have been carrying out multiple airstrikes, um, you know, obviously doing some target work for them, uh, scouting work for them. Um, so, I mean, not very much has changed about the U.S. role in Yemen. And, and this amendment, if it passes, and it won't, it won't survive the conference process. Um, but if it were to pass, it, it, um, it, it would end that. And that reflects, I think, the, a sense uh, in a large enough segment of Congress, certainly in the House at least, uh, that that people are fed up with this conflict. They're they're looking to rethink the the U.S. Saudi relationship, and and Biden is really not interested in that, despite his uh, his past rhetoric. 
And so at this point, essentially, the U.S. wants the Saudi relationship in order to maintain a foothold in the region and to balance against Iran and to, to shore up Israel. It seems to be the major reason, right? So it's just status quo foreign policy all the way down. Yeah. And it's I mean, it, you know, it's it's incoherent in the sense that what we talk about when we talk about the Middle East is stability. Um, and we talk about, uh, you know, U.S. troops it being in the region to to provide stability against the, you know, uh, overwhelming threat of Iran, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact of the matter is that um, the diplomacy that's gone on in the, over the last several months between uh, the Saudis and the Iranians, which, again, hasn't escalated to the level of like cabinet ministers or anything, but um, has clearly been going on, has been motivated largely by a sense that the United States is eventually going to leave. It's it's not going right. to be there at forever. some point. Yeah, and and yeah. at some point, these these countries are going to have to take care of their issues for themselves. And and it's uh, somewhat, I think, incoherent to talk about stability when um, the evidence, uh, you know, as as these uh, diplomatic efforts show the evidence is that the U.S. being there and sort of uh, backing the Saudis to the hilt and uh, you know maintaining a presence in the Persian Gulf and in Iraq and elsewhere uh, is what brings instability. It, it exacerbates these conflicts, and if you get the United States out of the way, uh, the tendency there is to is to try and at least come to some you know at least find a way to live together to to coexist. So let's turn to a topic that we've gotten, I would say, thousands of emails about, and that's Canada-China relations. Uh, so why don't we uh, let everyone know what just happened with Huawei? Is that how you uh, pronounce Huawei, it? Huawei, yeah, that? I think Huawei. so. And, and sort of the, the, the going back and forth between Canada and China. And Derek, maybe you could give a little bit of a summary of you know what happened a few years ago and what just ended uh, in terms of the China's release of a couple of Canadian nationals. Right. So uh, back in 2018, the Canadian government arrested the chief financial officer of Huawei, Meng Wanzhou, on, she was wanted by the U.S. Department of Justice um, under the Trump administration for um, the specific charges were fraud and conspiracy to commit fraud. Ostensibly, uh, she lied in establishing a, a subsidiary of Huawei whose purpose, real purpose, uh, supposedly was to evade U.S. sanctions on Iran. So the Canadian government arrested her. They prevented her from going back to China. Uh, they've kept her under arrest, house arrest. Uh, ever since. She hasn't been able to return to China. She's been stuck in Canada. The Chinese government, not long after this, uh, arrested a couple of Canadian nationals, Michael Kovrig uh, and Michael Spavor. Uh, apologies if I'm not getting those the names two, right. two Michaels, uh, yeah. Right. The two Michaels who, uh, you know, ostensibly on like espionage charges. It was pretty clear. It's been pretty clear that they arrested them in retaliation for uh, Mung's yeah. arrest, and they've been holding. They seem them to have done nothing ever the, since. The two Michaels seem to have done nothing. Right. Really. It's it's not. Yeah. yeah. There's no no evidence that I've seen that they they actually did anything. On Friday, the Biden administration, Department of Justice, announced that it had come to an agreement to defer Mung Wanzhou's prosecution. Uh, which meant the Canadians no longer had any reason to hold her. She went back to China. Uh, the Chinese government uh, immediately released the two Michaels who went back to Canada. What's somewhat interesting about that is China has been insisting 
uh, for obvious reasons that that they arrested these guys for legitimate reasons that it wasn't retaliatory that they weren't like engaging in hostage negotiations basically I believe the government. <laughs> um, and, like uh, I mean you know th- nobody really bought it but but it it is interesting to me that they release them so quickly as to leave like no doubt that this is yeah, really no what doubt. was going on. They want to um, make clear that they don't, I think what they want to do is they want to make clear to the West, if you fuck with us, we'll fuck with you. But if you don't fuck with us, we won't fuck with you. Yeah, That's I essentially what they're trying to, to do. That. Like my initial yeah. reaction was why would they do this and like uh, just to basically admit that they're, they're playing, you know, they're playing it like uh, a hostage exchange type of a thing. But the more I think about it, the more I think it's really like, it's really a message. It's really, you know, yeah, this is what we did and we'll do it again if you, you know, if you don't leave us alone. Based on what the spokesperson said, Patrick, strong reaction and still harsh words for Canada. Huawei is interesting. I mean, Huawei was sort of the boogeyman for the Biden or for the Trump administration, rather. Um, you know, it's very involved in global 5G uh, telecom work. And, and there's this sort of low level panic being kind of articulated for, by the Trump administration that they were going to build spy, you know, spying uh, networks into the into everybody's 5G systems and uh, that they're working on behalf of the Chinese army or the Chinese government. Um, and, you know, I, I think the Biden administration is uh, somewhat less paranoid about this. I haven't seen them make a lot of public statements about Huawei, but there are still a lot of Trump era restrictions on the books about Huawei getting involved in any telecom work in the United States. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that develops. So let's end on a on actually a hopeful note for the first time, <laughs> kind of. Uh, this new poll, uh, it was released by the Eurasia Group. Is that who did it? I think. Um, but this new the Eurasia poll, Group Foundation, yeah. The Eurasia Group Foundation, right. So, uh, Derek, why don't you run down what this poll said, why it's important, why we might actually end today's episode of the news part of American Prestige, which is at least a glimmer of hope. <laughs> um, yeah, sort of like partially hopeful, and I think partially reinforces one of the issues that we've talked about on the podcast. Um, the Eurasia Group Foundation does an annual poll of the U.S. public's foreign policy views. What they found in the most recent poll is that there is a strong tendency away from militarization toward diplomacy. You know, some of the specific findings were uh, 58% of respondents want to uh, increase U.S. diplomatic engagement with the world. Um, if you ask them to rank their priorities, the foreign policy priorities that the United States should have, they put humanitarian aid and disaster relief high on the list. COVID-19 relief high on the list ahead of military objectives. Um, over 60 percent support reviving diplomacy with Iran via the, the nuclear deal. There's I mean, there's more. 62 uh, percent think that uh, we shouldn't be in the business of nation building anymore. Yeah, so I think uh, the broad trend you know, is the, that people the trend is away from military. Yeah. Yeah. And, and towards, the trend is like strongly away from military. Right. Which is interesting. Right. So I think this is both good and I mean, bad is not the right word, but it's both good. But we shouldn't overstress the positive elements because it's good that Americans are like we should 
shouldn't start, you know, using our military all over the world. There's still very little space for discussion within the larger United States context about the literal structure of the American empire. And I think the goal of the left, so such as it is, uh, such as the left exists as an organized force in American politics, both within Congress and in the broader public, the goal now, I think, would be to move what I view as essentially tactical criticisms of the use of the military to uh, retain the strategic goal of American empire from tactics to strategy, where we have to begin thinking literally the fundamental role of the United States in the world. And that will ultimately have to depend on attacking the literal structure, the hundreds of bases that this country actually has in the world. Yeah, I think there's room for that. I mean, you know, the vastly more uh, of the respondents to the survey want to see the the military budget decreased uh, than increased. Um, they want that money to be put toward things here in, in the United States. Um, it, it's what what I think is the the caveat here, and is something that that we've talked about on the show before. Is uh, it, it, this highlights some positive trends among the American people, but it also highlights the absolute disconnect between right. the foreign policy <laughs> desires of the American public and, and the actual discourse that goes on around foreign policy in Washington, D.C. and the, Which we talked the about removal, with Kate Kaiser last right, week. Right. We've talked about with Kate and we've talked about, you know, sort of the, the history of this, of, of deliberately taking foreign policy out of the realm uh, of political engagement and, and disconnecting the American public uh, from the debate around foreign policy. And it just highlights how big that gap is now. And and I think fixing that, kind of repairing that gap or, or bringing, you know, a public role or public voice back into uh, foreign policy, the foreign policy debate is, is a huge objective because clearly – uh, if you did that, the the American public is, seems to be on the side of restraint and and things that I think, broadly speaking, the left would support. It's and that's interesting. I remember, you know, um, when I was serving as an advisor, a foreign policy advisor to Bernie's campaign. Um, one of the things that was concerning was like, how does one actually do that, right? Let's say, you know, a Bernie one, it's day one. What do you do to bring a public voice into foreign policy making? Um, and I think one of the things that the left could do out of power is begin to actually explore that problem from, you know, a strategic perspective. And what, in what ways and, and where within this complex system would one be able to actually insert a public voice, uh, a voice of restraint? And it's not an obvious answer because the system is so complex, it's so wide, power centers are so dispersed, both within this country and around the world. So this is a really important, um, in my opinion at least, intellectual problem uh, and strategic problem that the left out of power, which it is now, should be considering in the next you know, several years, several decades. Hopefully we'll be able to do it before that because the, the climate <laughs> will cook the planet. Um, yeah. But I think this is a really crucial issue. I think it's, um, I mean, there's two aspects of it to me. One is how do you change the system to allow more space for, for the public's, for public opinion to get in? The other is how do you get people to care enough? Because the, the there's, you know, these, this poll is, is, Good news in the sense that if you ask somebody, what do you want to do in terms of foreign policy or what do you want to do with the military budget? Yeah, the answer they, they isn't positive Bob answers. Yeah. But yeah, right. The answer isn't like I want to start World War Three with China, uh, which is great. 
But the other piece of that is how important is it actually to you that that these right. things that these uh, foreign policy your foreign policy views be reflected uh, in the U.S. government? And that's a different that's a different piece. And and as we've that's a I horse think, of seen, a different color, as they yeah, used to say. Yeah, I mean, yeah. As, as we've seen, it's not a it's not necessarily a priority for a lot of voters. Right. And why would it be? It, it, they feel like it doesn't directly affect their lives and they seem to have no impact. So, uh, you know, it's not just because like people are ignorant or they don't care. It's because the system has been designed to remove them from having any effect. And if you're going to have no effect, why would you continue? Right. I mean, we, we on the left right. like banging our head against the wall. But if you're, you know, a normal person, why would you keep on just doing <laughs> yeah. that? And so this is actually yeah. a really important uh, political question. So I know one of the one of the ways that, that uh, you know, we try to do it is to say, you know, look at this trillion dollars that we're spending on a security state or more if you you know really add up all the the facets of it and what could we be doing with you know if you have to cut that in half what could we do with that money but it's hard it's hard to make that case to people because it's so abstract it's not like you're taking something away from them uh, to put into the you know to put that the resources into the military state you're t- asking them to sort of imagine what could be if we budgeted things in a different way and it's just hard to uh you know it's hard to get people riled up about in, in that way i think especially because the system just seems so disconnected so on that half happy note um why don't we end the news portion uh and and please enjoy our interview with christy thornton uh on her excellent new book about the history of Mexico and its role in international development. I'll see you next week, Derek. Talk to you next week. Hello, everyone. It's Danny Bessner, um, and I'm here and very happy to be here with my colleague and friend, Christy Thornton, who is Assistant Professor of Sociology and Latin American Studies at Johns Hopkins University and just released uh, a path-breaking new book titled Revolution and Development, Mexico and the Government uh, Governance of the Global Economy in 2021. And this is what we're going to be discussing today. So, Christy, thanks so much for uh, joining us on American Prestige. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I guess we'll just start at the beginning. So what is the, the, let's say, the traditional story of global development, the story that your book tries to reshape? So listeners have a sense of why your book is so important. So how have people traditionally navigated the history of international political economy in the 20th century? Yeah, so the book makes a really distinct argument about the kind of origins of what we might think of as the international development project, right? The sort of apparatus of development, the institutions like the World Bank and the IMF and the various regional development banks and the WTO, right? What my book is really trying to do is tell a new kind of story about where those organizations came from. And the argument is that, in fact, um, you know, the traditional story tells us that at mid-century, brilliant men in places like Washington and London were sitting in their offices, scheming up ways to continue to control the world uh, as decolonization was happening, um, as the United States was a rising hegemon. And so those people, men like U.S. Treasury official Harry Dexter White, sort of came up with this brilliant and domineering plan to create these institutions that would then instantiate development and sort of make international development into a project. Um, The most kind of typical version of this comes from a set of scholars we think of as the 
post-development scholars, um, people who were trying to argue against the legitimacy of the very idea of development. And so they trace its origins to a kind of U.S. imperial project at mid-century. And my book argues that what they ignore is, in fact, um, you know, at least two decades of agitation, organization, and demand for international development, and specifically international development institutions coming from Latin Americans. So the book really argues that, you know, instead of being a kind of brilliant and nefarious imposition from above, the development apparatus as it develops at mid-century is in fact a reaction to much more radical demands for development institutions that were coming from the third world, from Latin America in particular, in the kind of interwar period. So one of the things that I'm really interested in is why does development become such an important project? Because, you know, from 2021, the idea of growth and developing to become an industrial society seems obvious in a sense. Like this is the quote unquote natural path of of uh, of a society. And, and there's elements of that, I think, across, you know, the ideological spectrum on mm -hmm. the right, on the left. It's a, it's a crucial uh, uh, element of Marx. You know, this is why Marx argued you needed capitalism to develop and then you would get socialism. Right. So maybe you could talk a little bit about um, the problem of development. When does it become an issue that states become interested in? And even if, if you're um, willing to maybe even talk a little bit about the 19th century, where this becomes mm. like an important thing for rising states, because nationalism, nation states and modern empire go together with development. So maybe give a bit of a broader perspective and then we'll go in specifically to your book in Mexico. Yeah. So that's a really interesting point. Um, historians have shown that, you know, many of the ideas that come to undergird what we think of as the kind of development project of the 20th century do in fact emerge in the 19th century in the thinking of people like Friedrich Liszt um, and others who begin to argue, yeah, that sort of economic modernization will come along with and will be necessary um, with kind of political modernization. And so many of those ideas, um, you know, they, they look to the United States and Europe as a kind of model. This is how we get the development of sort of modernization theory, right? We hold up kind of particular cases of capitalist development as the kind of prototypical cases. And we ask why have other societies followed or not followed those cases? So as we move forward in the 19th century, um, you know, the countries in Latin America, especially are being increasingly um, brought into global circuits of trade, um, you know, primary commodity production, etc. As we move into the 20th century, there begins to be a sense um, from the Latin American perspective that um, development, there's a kind of proto-dependency argument being waged by these, by the Latin Americans, which is to say, Latin American thinkers begin to realize, you know, very early on that the riches of places like the United States and Europe are actually dependent on the primary materials, the commodities, the labor of people from their societies. So, you know, in my book, the people who argue about the need for development, they see it as a kind of reparative strategy. They see it very much as a way to kind of, um, to correct some of the historical imbalances in ways that will, um, you know, reorient, redistribute resources from north to south in recognition that the resources have been flowing the other way for literally hundreds of years at that point. So, you know, in the early part of the 20th century, you begin to have Latin American thinkers, um, you know, 
talking about the ways that they have been exploited by European and by European countries in the United States and trying to come up with ways to reverse that in a certain sense. Yeah, and I would say, just from my perspective, the um, relationship between the global north and the global south that gets initiated with colonialism in the late 15th century is the foundational political relationship of the next 500 years. Like, yeah, uh, absolutely. everything that happens on Earth is basically fundamentally <laughs> a function of that exchange early on. And I yeah. think it's really crucial. I think that's really important. And but there's also, you know, one thing that we tend not to remember is um, when it comes to the U.S. Latin American relationship as a kind of particular kind of semi-colonial instantiation of that, um, you know, the kind of age of revolutions that brings these countries into being around the same time. You know, the um, independence wars will kick off not that long after the independence war here in the United States. Um, and many of the Latin American countries will come into being thinking of themselves very much as kind of sister republics of the United States. So there is a kind of birth of Western Hemisphere republicanism in which white elite Creole um, leaders in Latin America are arguing that their countries are functionally the same as the, as the United States, right? That they should not be subordinated to the United States because they have the same kind of um, political and uh, economic structures. And so they're trying to really um, follow the United States, but, um, you know, argue that they are, in fact, and they should be considered equal in really important ways. So the distortions that then begin to play out over the 19th century and into the 20th that really um, deepen a kind of subordinate relationship between the United States and Latin America are seen as, you know, being not only really purposeful on the part of particular Latin American, I mean, North American capitalists and political leaders, right, but as being a kind of distortion of the way that it should be, because these countries came into being around the same time with these similar political systems. So there is very much a sense that the United States has kind of held Latin American countries down, um, given that they kind of start in a similar place. So speaking of elites, let's talk a little bit about Porfirio Diaz, because <laughs> your book starts in the Mexican Revolution, uh, which, of course, is the revolution 19, begins in 1910, um, Constitution 1917, and then officially ends in 21. Is that correct? Yeah, more or less. Yeah, more or less. Right. And there's some wars in the 20s. But maybe you could give a sense about Diaz, what his vision of modernization and mm. development was, and then why don't we lead that into the revolution as a reaction or not to what Diaz was doing? Yeah. So, you know, many of the countries in Latin America, one of the things that they realize from the very beginning is that they don't have the kind of national capital that a United States has, right? The kind of vast continental expansion of the United States um, and the ability of the United States to kind of raise its own capital through interstate trade, right? Instead of international trade um, means that the United States has more resources, has a more developed banking sector, financial sector, etc. So um, in Latin America, many modernizing elites begin to realize that they, in fact, need foreign capital if they're going to, um, you know, put their put their modernizing projects forward. Porfirio Diaz is really emblematic in this. Um, he comes into power in the 1870s. He will stay more or less in power with a short interregnum until, like you said, 1910, 1911. Um, and it is um, under his rule that um, he grants a great number of concessions, basically, to North American capitalists, to U.S. capitalists, to Europeans as well, right? There's lots of German interests. There are some British interests, etc. Um, but particularly in sectors like agriculture and mining and petroleum and railroads, right? Massive 
tracts of land and industrial concerns are sort of granted to these foreign capitalist firms. And so all of these foreign capitalists come to have really serious interests in Mexico. Um, and there is very much a sense developing as we move into the 20th century, kind of as the revolutionary ideas begin to um, come forward, that that is a kind of extractive, exploitative relationship, right? That these North American capitalists are exploiting um, Mexican resources. And so that becomes one of the kind of key um, uh, drivers of the revolutionary process. There are others, of course, against the dictator Diaz. The idea of not having re-election becomes very important. So there's sort of political liberals committed to democracy. There are, um, you know, agrarian interests, of course, in the South and in the North who want land reform. Um, and then there's this whole set of people who want to kind of kick out the foreign capitalists and have Mexican resources work for Mexican people. So those three things um, kind of come together in various factions of the revolution. Um, and by the time we get to 1910, um, when the Revolutionary War really um, takes off and lasts, like you said, for about a decade, um, that the sense of kind of fighting back against American capitalism um, becomes an important strand of the revolution itself. And that is, you know, especially a reaction to the kind of modernizing development under foreign domination that Diaz himself put in place. So what are the particular instantiations of that reaction and how do they play out in the revolution itself? And this might require some sort of a brief history of the of the revolution in the north and the south and the various interests in Mexico, because Mexico, like the United States, is diverse geographically, yeah. has different industries and different areas. So like what are the major what's the state of play in, in the 19 teens? Yeah. So hugely important things are questions about land reform. Um, when the Mexican constitution of 1917 gets written, um, the sort of winning faction of the Mexican revolution is called the constitutionalist faction. And they're basically just the political liberals. They are elite landowners, you know, who are not necessarily trying to completely overturn the society, um, but they have become, through kind of military force, become the most dominant faction of the revolution. So the president um, at the time of the writing of the constitution, Venustiano Carranza, um, he, what he brings his kind of draft of the constitution to this constitutional convention. And it's basically just trying to instantiate kind of liberal democratic values. There are all these other factions of the revolution, uh, you know, around, um, the, a general who works below him, Alvaro Obregón and the, um, those who has the strong backing of the working classes and of organized labor. Um, and then there is the interest of the sort of agrarian radicals. So Pancho Villa um, and uh, Emiliano Zapata will really come and argue strongly for land reform, for breaking up these giant agricultural haciendas, for taking power away, power and money and land resources away from the church, um, you know, having universal secular education. Um, the constitution will for that reason, right, um, call for a kind of massive land reform, which doesn't actually get um, finalized truly until we get into the 1930s, but it's written into the Constitution that, you know, Mexican land and Mexican subsoil rights, meaning mining and petroleum goods, um, belong to the nation. And that but in belonging to the nation, right, rather than being private property, being the kind of inalienable right of individuals in Mexico, property belongs to the nation. And the Constitution says it's up to the state to basically, um, you know, dispense with it in the interest of the public good. So that new Constitution, 
constitution gets written really to um, call for massive land reform, to kick out foreign oil companies, um, to massively reduce the power and, and land holdings of the Catholic Church. And so what that means is that in North America, all of these North American and European capitalist interests who have been in the mining and petroleum and agriculture and railroad industries are now suddenly find themselves on the wrong side of the constitution. And so the reaction is very swift um, and very strong. And you see, for instance, um, American capitalists getting together and forming for instance, institutions like the National Association for the Protection of American Rights in Mexico, which is headed by the oil companies, gets together with some banks and some railroad interests. And they basically try to, you know, form a kind of organized capitalist cartel to make Mexico pay for um, confiscating property, etc. Um, there are other groups like that. The International Bankers Committee on Mexico basically is trying to use diplomatic pressure to pressure Mexico to um, pay de debts that it had defaulted on during the revolution. So the capitalist reaction to the Mexican revolution is massive and overwhelming, even as the Mexican state itself does not necessarily, you know, U.S. capitalists make more money after the revolution than they do before it. Um, that's kind of one of the strange turns of history. But the reaction from the kind of organized power of these foreign capitalist interests really brings strong pressure on the Mexican state um, and in international fora does so as well. So I have a new article that'll come out in diplomatic history very soon that makes the case that, um, you know, in the kind of fight over the League of Nations, when the United States is having its big debate over whether or not to join the League of Nations, um, we tend to remember them thinking about, you know, British naval power and redrawing the boundaries of France and, you know, what's going to happen in the Balkans, etc. But in fact, in Congress, in the Senate and in the public opinion, one of the things that people here in the United States are arguing about is, will the League of Nations take away the ability of the U.S. to intervene unilaterally in Mexico because of the revolution? There is such concern in the United States that allowing the Mexican revolutionary process to just go forward uncontested, right, means a really strong affront to the U.S.'s vision of kind of liberal international capitalism. Yeah, sure. I just want to make one clarification. Uh, Christine, when you say North American, you're referring to the U.S. mostly, right? Yeah. Yes, that's that's <laughs> that's how they that's how they say it in in Mexico. The the North Americans, the North Americanos. That's like yeah, generally referring to the United States. Although today, right, Canadian mining interests are massive throughout Latin America. So today we would definitely fold Canada into that. But in this earlier part of the process, yeah, it's the U.S. So one thing before I move uh, move on to the twenties, one thing that I want to ask you about is I think we on the left have a really good understanding of capitalism, um, and we have le a less good understanding about how capitalism interacts with security interests. Mm -hmm. So of course, during World War One, there's the U.S. invasion of Mexico, and then mm -hmm. Veracruz in 1914, I believe, is that correct? Mm -hmm. and there's border skirmishes with Pancho Villa and exactly. various American uh, military forces. So maybe could you? How do you see those the the, the security and the capitalist mm. um, forces interacting in the war, um, and how do you think they relate mm. to one another? That's really interesting. I mean, I do think that there is a kind of contest going on within you know in the U.S. Um, among different kind of factions of capital and between the capitalists and the government because the capitalists are screaming for intervention, right? You have bankers and oilmen, people like Ed Doheny, Edward Doheny, the um, head of what was called Mexican Petroleum, which is this U.S.-based, um, you know, petroleum company, holds 
over a million acres of land in Mexico before the revolution. Those guys are just jumping up and down, arguing for intervention. And they have strong allies among particular um, sectors of Congress, you know, sort of conservative Republicans. Um, but there is, especially in this period, there's a kind of negotiation. Wilson, it does not necessarily want, he, he feels a little bit as though he gets dragged into the interventions that you mentioned, the blockade of Veracruz, the punitive expedition in 1916-1917. He's trying to walk this line where he's trying to do a kind of proto-good neighbor um, policy where he's trying to argue that, you know, the Monroe Doctrine should be good for everybody, should be a, a sort of hemispheric and a worldwide understanding where, you know, we're all working together as brothers, right? But the capitalists are just breathing down his neck, arguing for military intervention. And so he's actually, you know, with the exception of those two very big and very important invasions, right, he spends a lot of time pushing back on them. And so the capitalists see him as waffling. They're like, you're willing to invade in this one circumstance, but not in another circumstance. So there's just really strong pressure coming from the capitalist class and their allies in Congress, especially for invasion that the Wilson administration is sort of sometimes pushing against and sometimes going with. Very interesting. And I think that becomes a trend in liberal internationalism more broadly, yeah. uh, you know, like how, how to be good liberals while also invading and modernizing. So the revolution ends in the early 20s. What happens in the 20s and the 30s um, up to World War II? And I imagine the administration of Lazaro Cardenas, which begins in 1934 and ends in 1940, is going to be crucial here. But, you know, assume total ignorance of Mexican history in the 20s and the 30s. But what's going on in terms of developmentalism and how mm -hmm. uh, Mexican elites are viewing uh, the their role in this emergent geo geopolitical space. Yeah. The fascism in Europe and the Soviet Union becoming right. a real thing in 1917 and where uh, Mexicans are situating themselves. Yeah. So there definitely are really important political struggles happening within Mexico with factions, you know, of the post-revolutionary government that consider themselves more socialist oriented. You know, there is the founding of the Mexican Communist Party in the 1920s by M.N. Roy, who comes from India to do this. Um, so there certainly are kind of um, more more radical factions of the state and of kind of left party projects happening. You know, with regard to the kind of question about development and what that will look like, um, one of the most key and kind of overlooked things that I really stress in my book is Mexico is completely shut out of the international financial system in this period. So Mexico defaults on the last foreign loan is made to the Mexican revolutionary government in 1913 and then almost immediately defaulted on. So from 1914 all the way to the early 1940s, Mexico is a pariah in the international financial system. They're, uh, they can't get a foreign loan. No banks will lend to them. It's very, it's, you know, foreign investors are coming in and making particular kinds of investments, but they can't enter the kind of international financial system. And it turns out that that's really consequential for how Mexico then is going to behave in the international sphere in making the argument for development and development institutions that I trace in my book. So there, during the 20s, there's a series of negotiations between high-level Mexican leaders and U.S. bankers and U.S. state officials basically trying to get Mexico to agree to start paying back some of the debt, um, things like the Bucarelli Accords um, and, you know, these various kind of bilateral negotiations that seem to come to fruition and then immediately fall apart again. So that happens over and over and over again in the 1920s. So what then happens is in the 1930s, even before Lázaro Cárdenas comes to power, you begin to have under um, Plutarco Elías Calles, who is the kind of political leader before Cárdenas, who kind of runs everything from behind the scenes. He's called the Jefe Máximo. He's like kind of the, the guy who um, is the sort of political boss of 
the Mexican state in this early part of the 1930s, he begins to argue that the debt problem is actually the key problem for not only for Mexico, but for Latin America, right? Especially after the crash of 1929, you, in the rest of the region, you'd had all this speculative capital rush into Latin America um, after, you know, the Federal Reserve Act in 1913 makes overseas branch banking possible. All of a sudden you have new kind of banking instruments. And so you have tons of foreign lending in Latin America in the 1920s. Mexico's completely shut out of that, right? And so then when the 1929 crash happens and um, all of that kind of speculative capital then rushes back out of Latin America, right? Leaving Latin Americans kind of dizzy with the extent to which this foreign capital had rushed in and come back out, um, the Mexican state really takes this kind of leadership role in saying there need to be new rules and institutions for international finance, right? We've been shut out for, you know, at that point, over 15 years, not allowed to participate in the system. So we need to have new multilateral institutions. There need to be new rules and regulations about how international finance capitalism will work. And so that is the thing that the actors that, you know, I trace in my book really begin to pick up. And so, you know, the access to international credit and international finance is incredibly important for these countries, like I said, who don't have their own kind of sufficient pools of national capital for investment. So, um, the other thing that will happen in the 1930s, as we get to the late 1930s, that will be really important that people will know is that um, in 1938, Lacero Cardenas nationalizes the oil industry. Um, and that is after having, you know, actually finally taken the steps to kind of do some land redistribution. Um, and then in the context of, um, you know, the the Roosevelt administration here in the United States, Cardenas is able to actually, he breaks a kind of national crisis that is a series of strikes by just nationalizing the oil industry and gets away with it. Um, you know, the U.S. FDR does not invade. He doesn't, you know, the oil men are jumping up and down arguing that he, that he should. Um, but Mexico nationalizes its oil industry and it remains, uh, you know, a state-run oil industry to this day. Now, there have been some kind of recent neoliberalizations in the sector, but it is still, you know, dominated by, it's still 100% run by the state-run oil company Pemex. So that is also something that's going on in the 1930s. So those questions about international finance and about control over subsoil rights and foreign investment are, are sort of very live political struggles in that period in the 1920s and 1930s. So it seems like within Mexico, there's this developing idea about developmentalism that that has a, a few principles and that are essentially organized around Mexico controlling its primary products, its raw materials, uh, as well as having genuine access to the international political economy. They're they're recognizing that they're they're in a subservient position and they need to mm -hmm. they want to change that. Um, so is there anyone listening? At this moment, um, so who's listening to these, you know, these revolutions in Mexican thought yeah. about international development, uh, developmentalism, and how does that lead us into World War II? Yeah, so that's a really great question. There are people listening, and so one of the key moments, you know, an early chapter of my book is about um, this key moment in 1933, which is this Inter-American Conference happens in Montevideo, Uruguay, um, and at that conference, um, which happens kind of in the aftermath of the failure of the World Economic Conference at London, which was intended to kind of bring new forms of international financial cooperation to combat the downturn of the depression. And instead, Roosevelt blows the whole thing up and says, there will be no international cooperation. So the Latin Americans look at that and the Mexicans in particular. Um, and the Mexicans went there arguing that they were doing kind of proto-Keynesian um, counter-cyclical economic measures already. They make a really strong case there that they have done these things 
seems like before they're even theorized by Keynes himself. Um, and so when- Do you think that's correct? Do you think that they're they're accurately represented? So they're like Keynesianism avant la lettre. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, there, and- there is very much sort of counter cyclical economic policy being managed in the early 1930s by, you know, the, the Secretary of Finance, Alberto Giapani. Um, and yeah, and so he, you know, he stands up at London and he basically says, you know, the, all those things that you people are arguing we should be doing, Mexico has been doing these already for two years. Like, why don't you people catch up with us? Um, and, and so to, and people are like, huh, interesting. Well, yeah, he is listened to actually, um, because, you know, as the British and the, um, the, I, I spent a lot of time in the UK National Archives and one memo that I found was interesting. It was like the British Foreign Office thinking about the upcoming Montevideo meeting in 1933 and what was going to happen. And they kind of write this long discussion of how they understand, you know, what, what's going on in Latin America. And they say that the Montevideo meeting is going to kind of bring a struggle for leadership in Latin America. And they say, you know, we'll see who comes out on top of this. They say Argentina has the resources, but Mexico has the theories, right? And so Mexico's kind of understanding of its own place in the international economy, the things that they've been putting out there are already being listened to in that way. So by the time we get to Montevideo, um, you know, and the foreign minister of Mexico, whose name is Jose Manuel Puig Casarranc, he shows up in Mexico basically arguing that the entire kind of economic agenda of the conference needs to be scrapped. And that in fact, they need to deal with this question of the international debt and credit system. So he shows up and he argues for what he calls a new legal and philosophic conception of credit. And what he's trying to argue is that credit is, instead of a kind of technical economic science that is devoid of politics, in fact, it is a kind of reciprocal international social relation. And he says very clearly, he says, you know, lenders do for borrowers the same thing that borrowers do for lenders, right? Lenders need people to make use of their surplus capital. Otherwise, they're not going to make a profit, right? So he says this is an equation of at least two terms. And what he ends up arguing is basically that the credit form itself has become an ordering principle of international politics, and that the only way to combat that is to create these new kinds of institutions that will change the international financial system. So he argues there that there need to be created new permanent institutions to manage debt and credit in the Americas. He also calls for a debt moratorium and a whole series of other things. And then those ideas get sort of picked up and carried throughout the 1930s. Um, and I should say that the question of sort of who who's listening in that moment, the United States is pushing back against this massively. So Cordell Hull, the Secretary of State, who is, you know, a kind of trenchant free trader, all he wants is, you know, further instantiation of free trade, most favored nation principles, you know, reduction in tariffs. Uh, he wants nothing to do with this kind of international management of finance, kind of international planning of finance. But by the time we get through to the era of World War II, by the time we get to 1939, when the war is happening in Europe, the United States is realizing that this is going to be a serious problem, um, you begin to have people who are paying more attention to what the Latin Americans have been arguing for. And one of those people is Harry Dexter White of the U.S. Treasury Department. So he had already been arguing in the 1930s for more sort of aid to Latin America and to China in order to kind of make sure that both of those regions kind of stay in the U.S. orbit. Um, so when the Latin Americans are putting forward these demands for a new institution that will manage debt and credit, Harry Dexter White is there listening. And he's listening very closely, in fact, because he has a close colleague who he went to Harvard with, who is this guy Antonio Espinosa de los Monteros, who 
shows up at Bretton Woods and he, you know, Harry Dexter White calls him Tony through the entire conference. Like they're buds. Um, and so they, Harry Dexter White begins to really strongly listen. And rather than sort of deflecting and rejecting the Latin American proposals, he decides he's going to co-opt them. And so he takes up this proposal for what the Mexicans had called an inter-American bank and sort of makes it his own and sort of leads a process to get this new, what would have been the world's first multilateral development bank chartered. And so that actually like a bylaws and a charter for the institution are written up in 1940 um, and then defeated by friends of the bankers in Congress. So let's go to 1944 uh, and Bretton Woods. So this is the big, you know, hinge point in, in history that people always turn to, because um, I think it's really crucial that listeners understand what's going on. So maybe you could tell, how do people tell this story normally? Because mm-hmm. this is a story that's told in a thousand books um, about, you know, Dexter Morgan and Keynes coming together right. and building the financial architecture to ensure, one, as it's usually told, a Great Depression doesn't happen. And then two, American or Anglo-American, depending on who you're asking, dominance of the world. So what is the story as told and how does your new focus on Mexican thinkers, people who are at Bretton Woods, reshape our understanding of this Mm -hmm. crucial moment in 1944? Yeah, there's a couple of kind of standard arguments. And I should say, you know, I'm not the only person who's been sort of returning to this moment and thinking about it differently. My colleague, Eric Haliner, who I've worked with um, a great deal, wrote a tremendous book called The Forgotten Foundations of Bretton Woods, where he traces some of the same history that I that I have looked at here, but I've looked at it from the particularly from the Mexican perspective. Um, so the kind of tr- the received story that we have is the story of, of what's called sterling dollar diplomacy, right? Like the idea that the question is sort of who's going to be the global economic hegemon going forward, how that gets worked out is through this kind of epic battle, the Battle of Bretton Woods, which is the title of, you know, book, um, where it's basically, you know, Harry Harry Dexter White versus John Maynard Keynes, their competing visions for this. White comes out victorious, and that's all that matters, right? Um, One of the things that people have told us about this story is that, in fact, development matters very little here, that nobody gives a damn about development. Nobody's thinking about it. It's a complete afterthought. Um, And one of the kind of wrong stories that gets told in tons of the literature that only (laughs) that that reads the archives wrong is that the first draft of the World Bank didn't include the world, the word development. So the actual name of the institution is International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. People argue that White's first draft didn't have development in it. They are looking at the wrong piece of paper. In fact, the first draft does have development in it. And you can see if you look at his correspondence that he is in constant communication with the Mexicans and the rest of the Latin Americans as he's developing these ideas. Many of the ideas for what becomes the World Bank come directly from these negotiations over the Inter-American Bank, this kind of previous project that had been pushed during the 1930s. So the kind of contradictory thing that emerges from the literature is, one, an assertion that development just did not matter at Bretton Woods, that, you know, White didn't care about it, that Keynes didn't care about it, that it was completely an afterthought. And then second, the kind of narrative that comes later from the post-development scholars is that, in fact, this is the moment where, you know, the sort of malevolent United States locks the rest of the world into the development system as this kind of, you know, discourse of power. Um, And so, you know, what to me is interesting is that, um, that Bretton Woods was the kind a kind of multilateral um, initiative at all, right? That it was that the Roosevelt administration and that White himself, um, Morgenthau was very much a kind of um, follower here of White. Um, I mean, Morgenthau, Secretary of Treasury, of the, the Treasury, Treasury, exactly. Yeah. So the the Treasury Secretary is like he's not the brightest guy. He's definitely following some of his subordinates along here, um, and so. 
White, when he thinks about this conference and when the early plans are made for the conference, he he really realizes, and it's you know part and parcel of a kind of Rooseveltian vision, that the only way for these institutions to be legitimate is for them to actually be multilateral, right? The multilateral aspect of them is really important, and there, you know, people have kind of understood this as you know the the Latin Americans are there as just kind of a fig leaf for U.S. power. Dean Acheson famously says this thing about how um, the Latin Americans are just going to sit there until they vote, right? And so they're 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 just a rubber stamp what the United States is doing. And so the interesting thing to me was to kind of contrast that that narrative of kind of blind obedience on the part of the Latin Americans um, with what the Latin Americans are actually saying about this moment and what they're actually doing. And so going into the Mexican archives and looking at the studies they prepared of Her- Harry Dexter White's plans, um, looking at the ways that they diagnosed how they understood the global economic problems of the moment. I mean, the Mexican planning document are very clear. They say the main problem of the world economy is the United States. It's that the United States is a country that wants to sell and not buy. It doesn't, it, you know, argues that there needs to be greater world trade, but instead of investing, it's hoarding its money. So they are arguing basically for the United States to put its money where its mouth is when it comes to free trade, when it comes to investment. They're trying to argue like the United States wants to do what it's going to do, but not actually follow its own rules. So the Mexicans and other Latin Americans arrive at Bretton Woods prepared, one, to inject some interest in economic development in the debate, which is what the Mexican economist Victor Urquidy will later say, and two, to try and create ways that the United States will have to follow its own rules, right? Obviously, the kind of faith that international rule setting would make the United States have to do that um, is misplaced. And, you know, the Mexicans realized this at the time. They realized that the kind of preponderance of economic and military power means that it's going to be really hard to force the United States to kind of follow the rules that it has set up. But they really try to do so in the conference, right? They argue very strongly for the scarce currency clause, which is part of Bretton Woods that will make it so that when there are balance of payments problems, it's not just the kind of um, the poorer countries that are forced to change their policies, that the rich countries are also contributing to these international balance of payments problems. So they have to change their policies as well. So Latin Americans and the Mexicans in particular are really arguing strongly for these kinds of interventions and particularly for the idea of development. So you have Victor Urquidy, who is a famous Mexican economist. He will go on to be, you know, the president of the Colegio de Mexico. He's just a very, very very, um, you know, famous Mexican diplomat and economist. And he basically stands up in front of Keynes during the conference um, and, you know, gives a little speech where he says, you know, in the long run, before we're all too dead, if I may say so, development is going to have to prevail over reconstruction, right? So he introduces language into the, the, into the charter of the bank that says that development and reconstruction need to get equitable treatment, meaning that there will be a mandate for development going forward from these institutions. And so the thing that I think that is important there is like, okay, yes, if you look at, you know, just what Keynes cares about, you might not think that development matters. But in fact, you have the Mexicans there arguing for it. And you have them in this long relationship with somebody like Harry Dexter White, where they've been putting this on the table for literally a decade at that point. Right. So that, I think, is an important aspect of where the very idea of development and the creation of institutions to secure it comes from. So um, what are the big institutions to come out of the Bretton Woods Conference? And then what are the practical effects in the 1950s? Um, you know, the stories that's usually told, I mean, dependencia theory and, you know, it, that it doesn't fundamentally reshape mm-hmm. North-South relations. So what's mm-hmm. your take um, on on what are the practical effects of this whole thing? And just for listeners, just give them a sense of the big institutions that come out of it. 
Yeah, of course. So, you know, Bretton Woods creates the IMF and the World Bank. The IMF is intended to kind of stabilize currencies to make sure that um, balance of payments, you know, sort of temporary balance of payments problems don't completely bankrupt uh, various economies. The World Bank is intended to, um, you know, provide infrastructure, lending, etc. Um, so that was how the, the Latin Americans saw those institutions. The Mexicans realized from, you know, from the day that Bretton Woods ended that these two institutions are not going to be enough. And there's a kind of third pillar of the Bretton Woods system, um, which uh, is the question about trade. So you have questions about sort of currency, you have questions about investment, um, and then the question of trade is the, is the kind of third key leg to that. So what immediately follows is the attempt to create an international trade organization. Um, and this really begins to take off almost immediately after Bretton Woods. Um, the Mexicans publish all these papers saying, you know, if, it, you know, if the, we're going to actually solve the problems of the post-war economy, the IMF and the World Bank are not going to be sufficient. We're going to have to have you know, some international planning on trade. Um, so the United States immediately comes to Mexico City to this conference, the Chapultepec Conference, which is the Inter-American Conference on Problems and War and Peace, where um, the free traders... 1945, yeah. So the free traders in the Roosevelt administration, um, you know, who come out of the Roosevelt administration, who are kind of um, in the Cordell Hull vain, they show up at Chapultepec basically arguing that there needs to be kind of just loosening of trade restrictions, that you need to begin to bring tariffs down, that there need to be no quantitative restrictions, and that there needs to be a, a kind of assault on what they think of as economic nationalism. Um, the Latin Americans push back against this immediately, and the document that actually emerges, we remember this document that the Americans show up in Chapultepec with, which is called the Economic Charter of the Americas. This um, U.S. official, Will Clayton, shows up there um, with this kind of very strict free trade vision against economic nationalism and all its forms. What we don't remember is the document that actually gets negotiated over the course of that meeting actually completely reverses that and has this massive developmentalist bent. So it's clear that the Latin Americans are pushing for especially, you know, planning in world trade. The idea that the United States has to be, you know, sort of held to its own principles in, in trade and investment. And so they will then bring that um, Latin American countries, some Asian countries, countries like Australia, will then bring that into the negotiations over the International Trade Organization, which really, you know, begin in 1946, culminate in the 1948 Havana Charter for an ITO. There are two kinds of negotiations going on at the same time. One is among a restricted set, the nuclear group of nations, to create the general agreement on tariffs and trade, the GATT. But this negotiation is going on at the same time to create this new institution, the International Trade Organization. And, you know, if you read through the... the um, minutes and the notes of British and U.S. negotiators, they are just astonished by the extent to which the poorer countries are kind of insisting on a developmentalist vision for industrialization that has strict planning and in international trade. Like we're talking about an actual planned global trade system. And so the British are just, they tear their hair out. That And the Benelux countries, they're very angry with the kind of concessions that are given to the Latin Americans by, for instance, the United States um, on this front. Um, and so once again, what happens, as happened with the Inter-American Bank, is that you have U.S. negotiators, U.S. government officials basically conceding these points to the Latin Americans, to the developing countries, saying, yes, okay, we need this institution that's going to help us plan this, and these are the rules that are going to govern it. And then that gets basically effectively vetoed by the power of organized capital in the United States. So in the case of the Inter-American Bank, it was um, 
Wall Street bankers and their allies in Congress who blocked the convention to create that institution. In the case of the ITO, it is especially the National Foreign Trade Council, the National Association of Manufacturers. They argue very strongly in Congress that the creation of the ITO is against the principles of the American, um, you know, the American economy and that it means writing a blank check to the poorer countries. And so they managed to get it so that the ITO is not ratified and never comes into being and the GATT stands in its place, right? Um, and so Mexico doesn't join the GATT until the 19th 1980s, um, refuses to be part of that system, but some Latin American countries do join it. Um, and so that, the kind of rounds of negotiations that are meant to kind of bring down tariff barriers becomes the only thing that organizes the international trade system um, in the post-war period, basically until we get to the 1990s and the creation of the WTO. The ITO in that moment is kind of stillborn. And so there's very much a recognition that, you know, in response, import, in, in import substitution industrialization in Latin America is going to be all the more important, right? Because you can't create new institutions that are going to hold the United States to its own principles on these things. So in fact, we're going to have to close some economies down and do ISI instead. So it seems like to some degree the project fails uh, in the 50s and the 60s, but nevertheless, there's the Mexican miracle. Mm -hmm. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what the Mexican miracle was and why it is uh, important for understanding the history of developmentalism. And then we'll get into the NIEO because I mm -hmm. think this is a really important moment. Yeah, so the Mexican miracle is this um, period of massive economic growth in the 1950s and 1960s, mostly under a project that the Mexicans call stabilizing development, which is premised on import substitution industrialization. But, um, you know, we tend to think of this as a kind of moment where there is high levels of protectionism for Mexican infant industries. And that's certainly true. There is state subsidy. There, there are, you know, tariff and non-tariff barriers. But there also begins to be the development of new kinds of relationships with the U.S. economy. So, for instance, the border industrialization program, what we you know, think of today as the maquiladora sector, the kind of industrialization along the border there for um, you know, that kind of in-bond um, trade, uh, that develops in 1965, right? So even at the height of what we think of as the kind of closed nationalist part of the Mexican miracle, there is this kind of increasing imbrication with the, with the U.S. economy. U.S. Um, foreign finance will be increasingly important. So the, the Mexico will have by this point gotten itself back into the international financial system and will become a kind of model debtor and will do everything in its power to maintain its kind of good credit standing in the international financial system. So, you know, in this period of the Mexican miracle, there, there are very high levels of growth. You know, we're talking 8% a year. There's maybe 3% or 4% population growth. So, you know, overall, something like 4%, um, you know, economic growth you know, huge industrialization. The Mexico City itself and other cities are growing enormously. And, you know, it is a, it is a kind of important moment where the Mexican economy does grow massively. Of course, there are inequalities built into it. You know, the regional inequalities, the poorer parts of the South, the agricultural parts of Mexico's economy are not modernized in the same way. There's a real focus on industrialization. Um, but there is very much a sense that, you know, Mexico tried to reorient the international system and the United States wasn't having it in that way. So they sort of turn inward and do this import substitution industrialization and are relatively successful at it over the course of the 1950s and 1960s. By the time we get to the 1970s, some of its, um, you know, some of its uh, contradictions will start to emerge. So could you briefly describe what ISI is for non-specialists and then mm -hmm. say why it fails in the 70s? What mm. happens? 
Right. So import substitution industrialization is what it sounds like. It's the idea that rather than importing, you know, finished goods from other places, you will protect the industries that will make substitutes for those goods in your national economy. What that requires is you're, you still have to import capital goods, right? You still have to import the kind of big machinery that will make the machines that will make your kind of finished products, your, your small manufacturers. But Mexico gets very good at, for instance, textiles, um, food, you know, sort of canned food, um, various things like bicycles and th this kind of industrialization. Um, and, you know, so light industry becomes really important in Mexico in this period. And the idea is rather than only importing sort of finished goods that you can buy in Sears in Mexico, right, you will have national versions of those and not have to spend all your money on imports. Um, Mexico will... Um, It'll be pretty nationally focused in the 1950s and 1960s. They're not building a huge export sector yet. That will begin to change with the 1965 um, border industrialization program, where there begin to be more kind of um, connections to the United States and exports to the United States. Um, but, you know, in that moment, it's really about trying to build national alternatives for, you know, manufactured products in Mexico. Um, the contradictions that will begin to undo it um, have less to do with the kind of problem of ISI because Mexico does start to sort of ramp up exports. That's what most people, the kind of easy phase of ISI um, is one where the substitution of, you know, finished goods um, is not that difficult. And so countries are able to kind of do that light industry. The next phase where they move into heavy industry, where, where you're actually making your own capital goods, right? Having steel plants, et cetera, that is much more difficult. Mexico, you know, sort of early takes a step towards having a more export oriented relationship with the United States in a way that some other countries in Latin America don't, right? They kind of remain in the kind of closed phase of ISI. Um, but the kind of broader internal contradictions for Mexico are distributive, right? Are about sort of who participates in this growth project. And so, like I said, there is a massive focus on industrialization, on urban workers, on building a kind of welfare and social security system for those urban workers that will leave out whole swaths of the country, right? And so particularly in the South, um, you know, the, the parts of the country that are more indigenous and more rural, they will be left out of this kind of national growth project. And so that will begin to create some, um, create some discontent. At the same time, the important thing that's going on in Mexico in this period is that this is all happening under the guise of a kind of single party soft authoritarian state. So the kind of democratic promise of the revolution has by this point been undermined by a state that cares about stability above all and so has created a system where the president is picked by the outgoing president and everybody knows that he's going to win because there is one party and everything happens within that party, right? So those kind of political questions will begin to be big contradictions in this period as well that many people will know about the 1968 Tlatelolco massacre, um, which is a moment when... Um, students and workers, et cetera, are protesting for kind of more political rights within Mexico and are faced with massive state repression by this kind of single party soft authoritarian state. Um, and so those political questions and the kind of distributional questions of the Mexican miracle will really come to a head in that moment in 1968 and kind of make clear that the state is not as stable or as legitimate as it had been narrated over the previous few decades. And so how does what happens in the 1970s? And maybe you could also give a little bit of context of the NIEO and, and what precisely that is and how Mexico does or doesn't fit into that larger process. Yeah. So 
Um, when Nixon closes the gold window in 1971, when he says, you know, you, you can no longer trade in your dollars for gold in the, at the fixed rate that you could before, um, there's a kind of second piece to that, which is that he implements a 10% surtax on imports. And, you know, Mexico has started creating this new export-oriented industry to the United States, you know, the border industrialization program in 65. So by the time we get to 71 and this is happening, it seems like a particular affront to Mexico, this new import tax that's going to make Mexico's exports more expensive in the United States. So they begin to realize, you know, that they're kind of tying their economic future to exports to the United States has these kinds of consequences that the U.S. just multilateral, I mean, unilaterally makes decisions about how its currency will be controlled, despite the fact that it has set up this whole multilateral framework for it, right, completely ignoring the rules that it had itself set up. So, um, Mexico protests very strongly in 1971 against this import tax and against the kind of unilateral action, and then decides that they are going to take a leadership role in arguing for new forms of kind of multilateral organization. So at the same moment that, or, you know, basically before there begins to be agitation for a quote-unquote new international economic order, which is an idea that will be put forward in, you know, the context of a particular set of UN meetings in 1974, Mexico actually puts forward a proposal for this UN framework called the Charter of Economic Rights and Duties of States. And this thing, the Charter of Economic Rights and Duties of States, is intended to kind of create new regulations on trade and investment, kind of um, bringing back some of the ideas that had failed at earlier moments. And so particularly regulating multinational corporations, um, a um, you know, once again, kind of codifying a right to expropriation of, you know, foreign ownership, um, et cetera. And so the Mexican president at the time, Luis Echeverria, um, goes to a meeting in 1972, uh, the UN Conference on Trade and Development, UNCTAD, in 1972 in Santiago de Chile, and calls for this thing, a Charter of Economic Rights and Duties of States. And then negotiators will spend the next two years, right, from 72 all the way to 74, trying to negotiate this international instrument. And it's a really interesting, you know, when you get into the archives and the kind of behind the scenes story, Kissinger is very deeply involved. Um, you know, Nixon meets with Echeverria a couple of times. Um, and so the pushing this charter becomes a kind of pet project of this president, Luis Echeverria, who, it should be said, is widely regarded as the intellectual author of that Tlatelolco massacre, right, of the re massive repression of students and workers. So what will happen is Echeverria will show up at the White House and basically over and over and over again remind Kissinger and Nixon and Haldeman and anybody else who's in the room that he has an iron fist, right? And if there's anybody who's going to stop the advance of kind of more Vietnams, more Cubas, more Chile, it is Echeverria. And so he's pushing what is ultimately a pretty progressive um, international economic framework, but he's saying that it is the thing that will forestall further revolution and that he's the person to do it because he has put down violently the revolutionaries within his own country. So it's this kind of really interesting moment where it is kind of um, emblematic third worldist kind of high politics putting forward, you know, real restrictions on international capitalism, but it's being done by, once again, the kind of leader of this single party soft authoritarian state. And 
it's completely in keeping with a kind of corporatist vision of social order, where the state is the negotiator between capital and labor and kind of keeps everybody in line. And that's what Mexico is trying to do at this point, is create an international corporatist framework for keeping you know, labor agitation and leftist guerrillas in line at the same time as winning some concessions from international capitalism. So the Mexicans really see the charter as a kind of scaling up of the state project that they've put in place uh, on the Mexican domestic sphere. And so what are what happens to that charter? Does it have an effect? And maybe you could bring us up to the 82 default and we'll end there because this is such a critical moment in modern history. Yeah. So in the long negotiations over the charter, um, basically Mexico agrees to let go of the idea that this thing would be an would be a legally binding instrument. Right. At first, the Mexican negotiators are arguing that the only way for this to work is that it's actually like binding international law. And of course, the United States wants nothing to do with that. And so that's one of the big concessions that the Mexicans will make is to say, you know, we're going to leave out the kind of legal question of this. So it becomes another one of these kind of UN declarations. It passes over Overwhelmingly, I should say that, you know, like hundreds, more than 150 countries vote for it within the UN General Assembly, uh, you know, a host of developed countries, including the United States and, you know, the UK, et cetera, vote against it. So it stands on the books as a kind of UN resolution, but there's no enforcement mechanism for it. No binding. Yeah, exactly. And so the new international economic order resolution that, you know, puts forward some some other similar ideas kind of comes out of that same moment of negotiation and the NIO resolution is actually written and negotiated in the kind of working group meetings of the Charter of Economic Rights and Duties of States. We've tended to remember them the other way around, as though the Charter of Economic Rights and Duties of States is is what one historian called an augmented sequel to the NIEO. But in fact, it's the other way around. The Charter was being worked on for two years. NIEO declaration comes out kind of in the middle of that process. Both of those things, you know, are sort of declarations at the UN level. um, And this really kicks off what is considered the kind of um, the battle between the North and the South, right? The North-South divide that will then come to be the kind of defining question through the rest of the 1970s into the early 1980s. 1981, you have this meeting, the Cancun meeting, which is, you know, the North-South Summit, where the United States is supposed to get together with, you know, Great Britain and with, you know, the other developing countries and kind of finally resolve this North-South problem. What happens, you know, between when this meeting is called and when it actually happens is Reagan is elected. And so Reagan shows up in Cancun and says, there's not going to be any distribution, redistribution of wealth. Like, you know, absolutely not. There's no way this is going to happen. And so, you know, the Cancun meeting ends in a stalemate because the Reagan administration has made clear that they are not at all interested in the kind of um, the initiative led by um, Germany's Willy Brandt, who has tried to argue that, in fact, you do need to make some kind of social democratic concessions to the developing world if you don't want there to be more revolutions. Reagan says, no, no way, plays hardball. And I think one of the really interesting things that comes out of that moment from the U.S. perspective and the perspective of U.S. foreign policy is that it's in those negotiations over the charter and the NIO and the kind of north-south divide that you get the kind of development of 
a very strong and doctrinaire neoconservative approach to the third world, right? And so you have, you know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan and Jean Kirkpatrick and these people, you know, sort of turning to the UN and saying, you know, we created this UN, it now no longer works for us. And now we're in this moment of what Moynihan called the United States in opposition, right? Um, where, you know, we're going to look on the rest of the world as, you know, cup rattling third world militants, which is what William Sapphire called them, and, you know, dismiss their concerns. Um, so you, it's, it's in that kind of struggle that you see the kind of early seeds of what will become the kind of neoconservative approach to foreign policy, massive reductions in foreign aid, um, you know, all, all of that that's going to come in the 1980s. Military aid. <laughs> except military aid, exactly. Um, so that's the moment where that is really a kind of a crucible for that. Um, and so that's why that struggle, I think, is so important because it is, you know, the, the Mexican state is really putting forward what they see is really a compromise position. They're like, we, we want to create this kind of new set of frameworks and rules where we're going to concede a bunch to the United States. We're just going to say that we have the right to, you know, nationalize industries that, you know, the, the various kinds of developmental rights are codified. But even as they make that kind of concession, right, and it is this deeply kind of compromised document, the Reagan administration will then come along and say, you know, no way, um, and basically just take Yeah, which just highlights like the importance of U.S. power and, and yeah. how these things interact and as a U.S., as a rulemaking institution. So then what happens in 1982, um, and which is this, this crucial moment in Mexican history, which really, I think, sets the stage for the following decades, which we will talk about in a future episode. Uh, and then- <laughs> Tell us what happens in 82 and then sort of your broad takeaway of you know, yeah. studying this period. So, you know, 1982 is this moment where um, Mexico comes to the United States and says, we're not going to be able to make our next interest payment. We can't pay the debt that we've taken on. And Mexico has taken on this massive amount of foreign debt in the 1970s f- because of the distributional um, contradictions that I mentioned earlier. So Echeverria and then Lopez Portillo after him, they both try to, Echeverria especially, tries to put forward basically a tax reform on Mexican national capital, where he says, you know, the capitalists need to pay their fair share. And they're able to defeat that. They, they you know, continue to be basically contribute almost nothing to the tax rolls. And so, you know, as Echeverria is trying to kind of um, deal with the distributional dislocations that are coming from the industrialization program. He's just borrowing from abroad to fund his social programs. And so there is an expansion of the kind of social welfare state in Mexico, but it's not being financed by national revenues. It's being financed by this kind of profligate kind of borrowing from abroad. And so the Mexican foreign borrowing will go from something like $3 billion in 1970 to $80 billion in 1980, right? They just borrow a massive amount of money over that decade. So in 1982, they basically realize that they can't make the interest payments. Um, and, you know, in the context of the Volcker shock, the kind of, you know, raise in interest rates, um, the squeeze in, in international credit in general, they can't get new loans that are going to allow them to continue to pay the existing loans. So they come to Washington, the, you know, finance minister comes to Washington and he says, we're not going to make the interest payment. And that 
basically is a systemic threat to the international financial system. Um, you know, if, if Mexico goes under, it would take, you know, a whole host of U.S. banks with it, essentially, and cause a huge shock. So the United States government gets together with um, the IMF, the World Bank, the Bank for International Settlements, and basically, you know, puts together a rescue package that requires the kind of first steps of structural adjustment for Mexico. We'll begin to dismantle that massive welfare state, open up the kind of trade barriers of the Mexican economy, and really put in place some of the policies that, as we move forward in the 1980s, will become codified and then become the kind of backbone of NAFTA-era Mexico. So in response, you know, with the idea that, you know, rescuing Mexico from its financial crisis, which is in fact rescuing American banks, right? It is rescuing the Mexican state, but it is more importantly rescuing American banks from the Mexican financial crisis. In response, the, you know, IMF, World Bank, U.S. Treasury Bank for International Settlements imposed this whole series of conditionalities that are about completely reorienting the Mexican developmentalist economy. Um, and so Mexico after 1982 will just be a vastly different country than it was in the long period in my book before that. Um, and so, so we'll talk about it in a future episode. We'll yeah. do <laughs> Mexican history. So yeah, so like studying this long period, going back to the revolution and before, what's your what's your big takeaway from uh, what do we need to understand? What are the lessons learned? Not lessons, yeah. but you know, analytical no. frameworks. I do think that there are some important lessons. And one of the important lessons gets at what I was talking about just a minute ago, which is to say, you know, we repeatedly had these moments where, you know, Mexican state officials would put forward quite radical demands and then sort of grant concessions to the United States, walk them back, and then see the United States, see the see US capitalists basically veto it anyway, right? So the kind of concessions towards being, um, you know, a kind of good you know, good credit risk towards being the kind of good pupil in the international sphere, right, repeatedly didn't matter because U.S. capitalists just came in and vetoed the whole process anyway, right? So that move towards making kind of, you know, preemptory concessions for the radical demands, in fact, doesn't work. It just gets kind of, you know, overrun by the organized power of U.S. capital especially. And so one of the things that I wanted people to understand in this book is that, yes, development was this kind of radical demand that came from below that was co-opted by the United States, right, made into a kind of tech, the technology of power that we understand it. But that's because of the way in which the United States was able to kind of blunt the more radical edges of it, right? And so as we think about reforming international institutions today, as we continue to think about what kind of rules could we place on global capitalism that might finally make it work for the poor as well as the rich, right? That's kind of the undying dream of development. And one of the things that I want my book today demonstrate is the kind of extent to which these are demands that have been put forward before and that they have been foreclosed by particular actors with particular interests, right? So understanding not only that the demands are sort of older than we think, but that, you know, the fight back against them is something that we can draw lessons from is, is important. So why don't we end on this question? Given the sheer power of the United States and particularly domestic capitalist interests to shape things, how would one go about genuinely shaping this sort of north-south relationship uh but barring i mean the real answer is the working class becomes conscious of itself and there's a transnational <laughs> labor revolution um but yeah. barring that given the strictures that we face in 2021 or, or that we, mm -hmm. we seem to face what do you think 
Yeah, I mean, it's a really difficult question. And I, I, you know, I've been participating in some conversations with some Mexican diplomats today who are thinking about, you know, climate finance and um, financing vaccines, for example, vaccine equity. And there remains a, a, a very strong faith that the only way to do this is to kind of build, you know, what the mid-century Mexicans thought of as a kind of trade union of the poor countries, right, to actually organize and bring the global south together in this way. Mexico is in this really crazy position now because Mexico is in the OECD, right? It thinks of itself solidly as a middle-income country. So its interests are very different from interests elsewhere in the former third world, in the global south. We saw that, of course, in these earlier moments where it's not just because these countries were poor that their their kind of economic interests were necessarily the same. Um, And then, of course, today we have the kind of added question of the power of China. Um, China doesn't play a huge role in Mexico, but it plays a huge role in other parts of Latin America. And so the interests vis-a-vis, you know, China's new development bank and the Belt and Road Initiative and those kinds of questions. There are some ways in which people saw that for a little while as kind of South-South cooperation. And now the question is, is in fact this just a new kind of sub-imperial relationship? So, um, you know, I think we're in this moment of kind of massive change, not only in the kind of world historical scope with the rise of China, but because of the coronavirus, because of the climate crisis, right? Um, And so there is still a really strong sense, I think, from these countries that, you know, banding together to kind of, you know, put their demands before the developed world is is the only thing that will work. Um, but what I want to argue is that you need to be cognizant of the power of organized capital, right, to intervene in these processes at particular levels. Yeah. <laughs> and so that to me is the kind of cautionary tale that I talk about in my book. Well, Chrissy, thank you so much. Everyone go out right now and buy from Not Amazon, Revolution <laughs> and Development. It's a path-breaking book and I encourage you all to check it out. Chrissy, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Danny. 